0: Former President Donald Trump pleads not guilty to charges of conspiracy and defrauding the government for trying to overturn the 2020 election. It's Friday, August 4th. This is WBUR's morning edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up after his court appearance, Trump claimed he is the victim.
1: This is a
2: persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America.
0: We'll look at what happens next in his case. Also, a federal appeals court allows a Biden immigration policy that was set to expire to stay in place for now. And this hour, researchers have connected the DNA from enslaved black people from the 1800s to more than 40,000 of their living relatives the first
3: of its kind analysis to take historical DNA and tie it to really tens of thousands of individuals
4: that are living today.
0: Cloudy with showers and storms today in the 70s. It's 7.01. Now the news.
5: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to four federal charges yesterday. He's accused of conspiring to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. This is in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has called the insurrection his saddest day in Congress, but he says these indictments are politically motivated, intended to hurt Trump's presidential campaign.
1: It seems as though every time Trump's goes higher in the poll, he gets a new indictment.
6: Separately, Trump has pleaded not
5: guilty to dozens of federal charges of allegedly mishandling classified documents, and he has pleaded not guilty to charges in New York over alleged hush money payments. Forecasters think U.S. employers continued to add jobs at a healthy clip last month, NPR Scott Horsley has a preview of this morning's jobs report from the Labor Department.
7: The report is expected to show that employers added somewhere around 200,000 jobs in July, similar to the pace the month before. Hiring has slowed since the beginning of the year, but employers are still adding more than enough jobs to keep the unemployment rate close to a 50-year low. The unemployment rate in June was just 3.6%. Competition for workers has eased somewhat as more people in their prime working years have come off the sidelines and joined the workforce. Wage gains have moderated, but so have price increases. Average pay hikes for the 12 months ending in June outpaced inflation during that period, so workers saw their real buying power increase. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
5: Persistent heat remains stuck over much of the central U.S. and the southwest. Temperatures from Southern California to Southern Texas will be in the triple digits today. Heat indexes of more than 100 degrees are expected from Kansas to the Florida Panhandle. Farther north, there are flood watches in Wyoming, Montana, and the Dakotas. Forecasters say heavy storms from the Pacific are bringing excessive rain to the region, In some areas, up to three inches of rain per hour could fall. A federal appeals court says the Biden administration's new rules for asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border can stay in place for now. NPR's Joel Rose reports that's a victory for the administration's immigration policies, at least in the short term.
8: A three-judge panel from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California has stayed a lower court ruling that found the new asylum restrictions unlawful. The new rules, which took effect in May, make it harder for migrants to get asylum if they cross the border illegally after passing through Mexico or another country without seeking protection there first. Last month, U.S. District Judge John Tiger found those rules unlawful and blocked them, just as he had blocked similar policies during the Trump administration. But he put his ruling on hold to allow for an appeal. The Ninth Circuit panel set an expedited schedule to hear the case, likely within months. Joel Rose, NPR News.
5: You're listening to NPR
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The impacts of climate change are becoming more evident in Boston waterways. The EPA's annual report card on the Charles, Mystic, and Niponset Rivers says that more frequent heavy rains lead to more stormwater pollution. Ian Cook is executive director of the Niponset River Watershed Association.
9: Those intense downpours that we're having that really scour the streets and parking lots and inject all kinds of pollutants, fertilizers, pet waste, etc. into our waterways, they're starting to create new kinds of challenges.
0: The report finds a half million gallons of stormwater were released into the rivers last year. That's down sharply from the year before. But Conservation Corps member Lawrence Brown says any sewage in the river is too much.
10: Just water in general is really important and it's just shocking that in 2023 anybody would have water that they couldn't drink.
0: Stormwater runoff and hot weather can fuel toxic algae blooms on freshwater lakes and rivers. The state's new fiscal year is off to a good start, at least when it comes to tax collections. The Department of Revenue says it brought in nearly $2.7 billion last month. That's 11 percent more than the same time last year. The department says July tends to be one of the smaller months for collections. The newest class of Massachusetts State Police troopers are being told to be compassionate and kind as they begin their careers. Adam Frenier reports on the graduation ceremony held yesterday in Springfield.
6: Along with the usual pomp and circumstance, the 88th recruit training troop marched into the Mass Mutual Center and performed drills. Then the 165-person class had their badges pinned on their uniforms and were sworn in by Governor Maura Haley. Following that in her remarks, the governor said this group of new troopers is one of the most diverse the department has ever seen.
11: Your cultural
12: awareness, your cohesion as a group across these differences will help you engage with our communities, build trust, and ensure public safety
6: in our state. The new state troopers will be assigned to barracks across Massachusetts and will go through three months of field training as they work with veteran members of the department. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Freinier.
0: Boston's historic Old South Meeting House will soon get a nearly half-million-dollar renovation. The landmark on Washington Street was where the Boston Tea Party was planned. Senator Ed Markey says the federal funding will help repair water and flood damage, which has been made worse by climate change. Workers aim to complete the project by the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, which is this December. It's 7.06.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at innuendo Natick and innuendo.com.
0: The Red Sox are back at Fenway tonight to play the Toronto Blue Jays. And from the Majors to Little League, there was a send-off this morning in Canton for the town's Little League team. It's headed to the New England Regional Finals of the Little League World Series. This is the first time Canton won the Massachusetts title. The team will play the squad from Vermont tomorrow in Bristol, Connecticut cloudy with showers and storms this afternoon it'll be in the upper 70s more rain possible overnight temperatures will be in the 60s some showers are possible tomorrow morning and then it'll be mostly sunny in the mid 80s sunny and in the 80s on sunday right now it's 68 degrees in boston thanks for starting your day with wbur
13: we are funded by you our listeners and by melville charitable trust committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at
14: melvilletrust.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C.
15: And I'm a. Martinez in Culver City, California. Today's job numbers are expected to show solid growth in the labor market. Coming up, we'll speak with former Labor Secretary Robert Reich about what it means for the prospect of a soft landing for the economy. First though, let's focus on former President Donald Trump's return to Washington where demonstrators outside of a federal courthouse had a clear message for him and it was quite similar to what Trump used to say about Hillary Clinton.
14: Inside the building, Trump pleaded not guilty to four felony charges stemming from his effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Prosecutors say he conspired to spread lies to create an atmosphere of mistrust and anger that culminated in the Capitol riot.
15: NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson spent all day at that courthouse. She's online now to tell us some more about it. Carrie, uh, the three indictments Trump has received this year, this one is is widely viewed as the most serious. Did that come across in yesterday's agreement
16: It really did, A. The special counsel investigation puts Trump at the center of overlapping conspiracies to defraud the government he once led, to pressure state election officials and his own vice president to try to stop the vote certification, and to deprive Americans of the right to have their votes counted in 2020. And even with all of Donald Trump's legal problems, it felt like a big moment to hear the clerk read out the case, the United States of America versus Donald J. Trump, five people who overnight outside the courthouse actually got to witness history from inside the room yesterday.
15: So take us in, take us inside that room. What happened?
16: Yeah, the magistrate judge, Mokshila Upadhyay, gave Donald Trump a roadmap. She read the four charges against him and accepted his plea of not guilty. And she released the former president with minimal conditions. Basically, don't commit a new crime and don't talk to people you think might be witnesses in this case without going through their lawyers. The judge also reminded Trump he can't bribe or threaten or retaliate against people. And she set his next court date for the end of the month, August 28th.
15: How did Trump react when the judge was speaking to him in the court and then when he was outside the court?
16: Yeah, inside the courtroom, the former president seemed to be somber and to respect the judge. But on the way to D.C. yesterday, he disparaged prosecutors and wrote to supporters, quote, I am being arrested for you. Then after the court hearing, Trump made some remarks at the airport.
2: This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very
1: substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him.
16: And of course, a the Justice Department says it's acting independent of the current President Joe Biden. And Attorney General Merrick Garland named a special counsel in this case to try to insulate it from any politics.
15: All right. Uh, do we know anything more about Donald Trump's strategy?
16: His strategy is going to be delay. The special counsel prosecutor is asking for a speedy trial. So Trump is treated like any other defendant. But Trump's lawyer, John Lauro, says that's a bit absurd. He says there's a lot of evidence to review, paper and electronic records. He's going to need months to sift through all that. And Trump's lawyer says a fair trial is more important than a fast one. The judge responded she could guarantee Trump would receive a fair trial in this case. She said they should prepare to learn a trial date at that next hearing, August 28th.
15: All right, that's NPR justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks. My pleasure. What Trump experienced in court yesterday is what many January 6th rioters have already faced. NPR's Arzu Resvani spoke to one rioter who believes it's time for the former president to face the same fate as those who stormed the Capitol.
17: For 70-year-old Pam Hemphill of Boise, Idaho,
18: Trump's day in court is long overdue. Nobody wants to see a president go to prison. However, It's time that we recognize that law and order is for everyone. More than 1,100 people who participated in the insurrection have been charged. Hemphill herself was one of them. I pleaded guilty because I was guilty. Trespassing, picketing and parading We broke the law, period. This
17: retired alcohol and drug abuse counselor who voted for Barack Obama followed her friends and
18: family's support for Trump over time. He wanted to stand up against China and the border. And uh, he had convinced me and everybody else that the Democrats wanted this to be a communist country. So she voted for Trump
17: in 2016 and again in 2020. After he lost, a friend gifted her a flight to D.C. for the Stop the Steal rally, and off she went. Video she shot that day shows her at the Capitol building urging rioters not to
18: vandalize. Hey, what are you doing? Don't do that.
17: Other footage from that day show her advising a crowd to "quote occupy the Capitol," according to court documents. Several months later, law enforcement showed up at her door. Hempel was eventually sentenced to 60 days in jail and three years of probation. She says she looks back on that time with great regret.
18: I want the world to know that I followed a cult leader, and I'm really sorry that I did. Because I'm really ashamed of it. It's something I gotta forgive myself, but I. You can't blame me 100% because I was lied to by Trump. And for that, Hemphill believes Trump deserves to face consequences. The indictment shows me that even if you are one of the most powerful people in the world, that you are still subject to the laws that allow this country to be safe and free.
17: Hemphill accepts that many people may not believe she's truly sorry for participating in the insurrection, but her choice to speak up hasn't been easy. She says she's received numerous death threats in recent months and is in the process of moving. But she doesn't want to say where because the movement she once supported has now turned against her. Arazu Rezbani, NPR News.
14: The Labor Department will release the latest numbers today and they're expected to show solid growth. The strong labor market is a big reason why the economy has been resilient while inflation has been cooling bit by bit. The Federal Reserve is inching closer to its goals of 2% inflation, which is fueling optimism for a soft landing for the economy. Former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Rice joins me now to discuss all this. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program.
3: Good morning, Labor.
14: So in your view, does the U.S. still need to worry about a potential recession at this
19: point?
3: Well, there's always, always the need to worry about a possible recession. Yeah. Uh, But what is very interesting right now is that it looks like uh, we may actually have what's called a soft landing. That is, we're bringing inflation down without an inflation. Uh, This is something that a lot of economists thought could not be done. Uh, The record in the past has not been terribly good on this score, uh, but it looks like it is going to happen.
14: So if a soft landing happens, what does that mean for Americans who are struggling because of rising inflation, rising prices, wages that can't keep up?
3: Well, it's good news on all counts. It's kind of a Goldilocks situation in terms of the economy because it means that inflation is down. Uh, and, of course, we know it already is way, way down. It's around 3% relative to what it was a year ago, which is 9%. Mm-hmm. But also it means we're not going to go into recession. It means the jobs are not going to be lost. There's not going to be a a, a real a problem with the an economic downturn overall. Now, we're gonna know more later this morning as to what happened in July, Uh, but most people, including myself, looking at July job numbers are fairly optimistic.
14: You know, it's, it can feel confusing because this week we've had these sort of two competing economic narratives. We're expecting, as you mentioned, some good news in the labor market. But earlier this week, we saw the credit rating agency Fitch strip the U.S. of its AAA status because of political dysfunction in this country. How does that, being stripped of that AAA status, impact the U.S. and its economy?
3: Uh, well, it's not going to do- directly impact the United States, and it doesn't seem to have any impact in the in any of the economic indicators. Uh, it is a suggestion that at least one credit rating agency is nervous, presumably because there is a lot of political dysfunction in this country. Uh, but again, what's interesting to me is that notwithstanding all of the divisiveness, we have a Fed, Federal Reserve Board, that has managed to raise interest rates without leading to so far a recession. And at the same time, we've got a lot of major investments in infrastructure, semiconductors, wind and solar energy, manufacturing, uh, and antitrust enforcement. Uh, we've got a lot of things going on at the same time that are pro the economy. that are making the economy stronger and that are offsetting the higher interest rates in terms of slowing the economy. So uh, uh, this is where the Goldilocks is coming
14: from. Mm. You know, you're talking about the administration's handling of the economy for the most part, and it sounds pretty good. But polls show that many Americans don't approve of President Biden's handling of the economy. How would you rate the performance? And why do you think most people don't see it as good?
3: I I think uh, this is the best economy I have seen in... Well, about uh, 30 years. Uh, Mm. I think most Americans don't see it that way because in terms of their personal economy, uh, they may not yet feel the benefits of all of the public investments that have been made. Uh, There's still a kind of a nervousness and a, oh, a kind of trauma, post-trauma effect from the pandemic mm. and the recession that came just after the pandemic, and then the inflation, which came just after the pandemic. Uh, so I think that there is a, there's a lot of nervousness out there. Uh, I suspect that once consumers get used to a good economy. Uh, And we're going to, again, we're going to know more and more as all of these reports come through. Uh, Consumer confidence is going to continue to rise. It's already risen somewhat.
14: And when do you think people will start feeling the effects of all this?
3: Uh, I would say probably, if I were a betting man, I would say within three months.
14: Former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you Leila.
0: This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, an appeals court has ruled that a Biden administration immigration rule that was set to expire this week can continue for now. The rule dramatically restricts who can apply for asylum. It's 7:19. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
9: Are cultural and economic forces changing boyhood, manhood, and even fatherhood? Richard Reeves says. Many men and many boys Mm. are really struggling in school, in the workplace, Mm. in the family. And unless we pay serious attention to the problems of boys and men, they're just going to fester.
20: That's
21: why he says true gender equality means helping men, too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9
0: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The USS Constitution will pay tribute to Vietnam veterans today. Old Ironsides will leave its pier at the Charleston Navy Yard this morning during the ceremony. The event will also include a 21-gun salute that's scheduled to happen around 1130 near Castle Island. A high near 80 today with showers and thunderstorms likely. Those storms will probably continue tonight as it falls to lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of morning showers. Then it grows mostly sunny with a high of 84. Sunday, sunny with a high again of 84. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics with Shortcomings, a new comedy directed by Randall Park starring Justin H. Min as a film geek who seeks an ideal relationship when his girlfriend leaves for a New York internship, now playing only in theaters. From Mattress Firm, Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at
14: Angie.com or on the Angie app.
15: This is morning edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
14: And I'm Layla Falden. When hip hop got its start fifty years ago, it was a DJ cutting between two records and an MC rhyming over the beats. But for rap's first decade, the rhymes had a bit of a predictable pattern.
10: in a bus, brakes on the car.
14: The rhyme almost always fell at the end of the line, but there was a seismic shift in the complexity of rap in 1987 with the debut of Eric B and Rakim. Cultural critic Kiana Fitzgerald is looking back at a few of the game-changing moments in hip-hop, and today she examines the album paid in full.
1: the the
11: the The early hip hoppers from the Curtis Blows to the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Fives were more focused on preserving the sound of hip hop as it was in the beginning. When Rakim came along, he wanted to really put the emphasis on the internal rhymes. He said, you know what, I'm going to take these complex... Concepts and ideas, and I'm gonna place them in unconventional places for hip-hop.
6: I don't bug out a chill or be acting ill. No tricks in 86. It's time to build.
1: Eric be easy on the cut, no mistakes allowed. Cause to me, MC me move the crowd. I
11: made it easy to dance. So listen to this song. It's called My Melody, and it was one of the first songs that Eric B. and Rakim worked on together. A
6: repetition of words, just check out my melody. Some bass and treble is moist, scratching and cutting a voice.
11: And when it's mine, that's when the rhyme is always choice. I, want to I wish I could rap like him. <laughs> All right. He says, a repetition of words, just check out my melody. Some bass and treble is moist, scratching and cutting a voice. And when it's mine, that's when the rhyme is always choice. He placed the rhyme in the center of the bar instead of at the end, which is what we were typically used to hearing in hip hop. Rakim talked to NPR in 2009 about his style and influence.
4: I was shooting for something different. You know, like some of my influence was uh, John Coltrane. I played the sax as well. So listening to him play in, in the different rhythms that he had, I was trying to write my rhymes as if I was a saxophone
1: player.
6: I approach, exercise like a coach using a melody And add
11: numerous notes And when the mic and the Is attached like a match, I again I feel like Rakim is like a master weaver. He's someone that can take a concept and stick it through this, you know, entry point and then make it come out this other side in a way that you wouldn't have anticipated. And I think that's what made this this song and this project so special. My 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 take take, take After paid in full, hip hop really was never the same. It became a playground for people to just experiment. A lot of MCs that are still working today um have directly utilize the way that he speaks and raps and rhymes from you know uh an Eminem to a Lil Wayne to um you know Houston artists like Bun B and Zero they've all interpolated or sampled direct lines from paid in full and that really goes to show that you know Rakim ain't no joke. (laughs) I ain't no joke. I used to let the mic smoke. That was Kiana
14: Fitzgerald. Her new book is called Ode to Hip Hop. 50 albums that define 50 years of trailblazing music. She'll break down another album next week. Actress Michelle Yo
15: is known on screen as a woman of action. <laughs> Her longtime partner, Jean Todd, a former race car driver and former Ferrari CEO, loves going fast. But when it came to marriage, the couple took their sweet time.
14: Yeah, last week, Yo and Todd announced that they were married after a 19-year engagement.
19: I would say 19 years is a bit on the extreme end for how long an engagement typically lasts. That's Rachel Vanderbilt, a social scientist who has a Ph.D. in relationships
14: and marriage. It's why we called her up to ask the question, how do you make love last long term?
15: She says people need to put in the work to keep romantic relationships energized. First off, just acknowledge that no matter what, boredom is eventually going to creep in.
19: We become very predictable as partners. So I kind of know what to expect with you on a day-to-day, on a year-to-year at a certain point, and you know what to expect of me. To keep that boredom at bay, Vanderbilt has some tips. Break out of your routine, travel somewhere totally out of the box for both of you, and discover the place together. Doing something that feels bold, exciting, a little bit uncomfortable can help inject that excitement into your relationship, and you can feel a fundamental difference in the state of your relationship if you do that for a long enough period of time. Just make
14: sure it's a thing you're
19: both excited about.
15: Yeah, and that leads to another key point. Stop thinking that you're ever going to be able to predict your partner's reactions and feelings no matter how long you've been together vanderbilt says none of us are mind readers
19: the more you get to know a person the more you're able to make assumptions about what they think and feel at any given moment and the reality is that we're pretty bad at understanding people's motivations and intentions for why they do what they do
15: It's about really listening to what the other person's saying and being truthful about how we're feeling.
19: Being honest and open about what you're thinking, feeling, and going through, about the state of your relationship as well. So, like, how am I feeling on a day-to-day? Are things working or not working for us? But also in the long term, what do we have as goals as a couple? So you may not
14: exactly get back to that you-had-me-at-hello phase, and that's okay. What you have in a long-term relationship can be much deeper and much more rewarding. Just look at Michelle Yeoh and John Todd.
15: You know what happened, Layla, when I got down on one knee and asked Mrs. A to marry me? What? She threw up on me. What? I'm not kidding. She did. (laughs) I figured it can't get any worse. We've been together 27 years.
14: Oh, so you got married after that? Yeah.
15: I cleaned up the throw-up.
14: Whoa, Bomb that's from, real. That's real face. love, eh?
15: So there you go. I withstood that's it. That's
14: actually a really sweet story. It's disgusting and sweet at the same time.
15: Sweet? I don't know if I'd say sweet. <laughs> you know, maybe salty. Not sweet. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, new research shows that schools are much more likely to call moms rather than dads when they need to reach a parent. It's 729. There's a lot to sort out after former President Donald Trump pled not guilty to charges he conspired to overturn the 2020 election. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for insights on his defense, what's next in the case, and how it'll impact the 2024 election. We are funded by you,
22: our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran, with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design.
18: LaurenHolleran.com.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. It's clear what former President Donald Trump thinks about the latest felony charges against him.
1: This is a persecution of a political opponent this
2: was never supposed to happen in america
6: trump was speaking to reporters yesterday after he pleaded not guilty to a four-count federal indictment in washington it accuses trump of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the lead-up to the january 6th attack at the u.s capitol he's due back in court later this month a court in russia is expected to issue a verdict today against political opposition leader Alexei navalny If found guilty, it would be Navalny's fifth criminal conviction in Russia. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow says prosecutors want Navalny to serve 20 years in prison for extremism.
1: Navalny's latest trial has taken place under really unusual circumstances, even by Russian standards. Uh, Judges moved the trial from Moscow to inside the very prison, uh, where Navalny is already serving a nine-year sentence on fraud and embezzlement charges. Navalny now faces a slew of new anti-extremism-related charges tied to his work with the now-defunct Anti-Corruption Foundation. Uh, He's accused retroactively of financing and inciting extremist activities, as well as supposedly rehabilitating Nazi ideology.
6: That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The multiple legal challenges facing former President Donald Trump is dividing Republican candidates and voters in New Hampshire. WBUR's Anthony Brooks was on the campaign trail yesterday as Trump pleaded not guilty to charges connected to the 2020 election. Campaigning in Milford yesterday,
2: Republican Vivek Ramaswamy renewed his promise that if he's elected president and Trump is convicted, he'll pardon him. And I do think that on this same set of facts... Anyone not named Trump would not have been indicted. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's running a distant second behind Trump, also condemns the charges as political. But some other Republicans, including former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who was in New Hampshire this week, renewed his call that Trump quit the race.
7: We need to side with the rule of law and accountability. And every Republican candidate for president needs to state clearly where they are on this.
2: But even as his legal peril deepens, Trump remains the Republican frontrunner. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony
0: Brooks. For the first time, the state budget includes money to help pay for clothing for low-income and homeless children across the state. Lynn Margario of Cradles to Crayons says $200,000 was included in this year's budget. She says one in three children in the state don't have access to affordable and adequate clothing
18: a winter coat when it's 20 degrees outside, a pair of sneakers to go play in gym or do a sport. Do you have tops and bottoms that fit you when you're going uh, into your classroom?
0: Margario says the $200,000 investment by the state will allow them to continue to be a reliable resource for families that count on them. If you're looking for an excuse to go to the beach, we've got one for you. All six beaches on the Cape Cod National Seashore are free today. That includes Coast Guard Beach in East Ham and Race Point Beach in Provincetown. The National Park Service is waiving entrance pass requirements to celebrate the third anniversary of the Great American Outdoors Act. It's 733. We're
22: funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New
0: England. Boston Lights, presented
22: by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing
0: lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox host the Toronto Blue Jays. Boston is two games behind Toronto for the third AL wildcard spot. The New England Revolution are moving on to the round of 16 in the League's Cup. They beat the Mexican squad Atlas FC last night in penalty kicks in Foxborough. The Revs' next match is Monday. A rainy Friday today with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Temperatures will rise to near 80. Tonight those fall to the mid-60s and the showers and storms may continue. Saturday may start with rain, then skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with highs in the low 80s, sunny and mid-80s on Sunday. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org.
15: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy e. Martinez in Culver City, California.
14: And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. An appeals court handed the Biden administration a win yesterday when it allowed a rule restricting asylum at the southern border to stay in place temporarily. The White House argued that the rule helps control the flow of migration at the border. Set to end on Monday, the policy requires migrants to first seek asylum in the country they're traveling through or to apply online for asylum in the U.S. It does not apply to children traveling alone. For more on what this decision means, I'm joined now by Hamid Ali-Aziz, who covers immigration policy for the Los Angeles Times. Thanks for being here.
8: Thank you for having me.
14: So if you could start by talking about what this policy is meant to do and how it ended up in court.
8: Yeah, uh, this policy is a way for the Biden administration, they say, to try to limit border crossings and incentivize uh, migrants seeking asylum to go to ports of entry and, uh, like you mentioned, apply to enter the U.S. through a app on their phones as opposed to crossing uh, without authorization. Uh, but immigrant advocates and uh, lawyers have argued that this is an unlawful uh, policy that limits asylum and is in many ways comparative to policies that we saw during the Trump administration.
14: How has this rule impacted people seeking asylum in the US?
8: Well, we saw some data in late June that showed that uh, initial screenings uh, for asylum had dropped from you know historical rates from 83% to 46%. Mm-hmm. And the, the administration felt like this was proof that this policy uh, was working. And they argued to a federal court that without these new limits, border crossings could really overwhelm local towns and uh, and resources, and that this was essential uh, for their efforts to, again, try to incentivize uh, migrants to go to ports of entry and, and not cross uh, without authorization.
14: Now, you mentioned immigrant rights groups were arguing that this is unlawful. How have they responded to the appeals
8: court ruling? I think there's a disappointment uh, in the you know, decision to stay, the federal judge's uh, initial ruling uh, blocking this policy, but it's important to note that this this fight is not over. Uh, they'll have a chance uh, in the Ninth Circuit to, uh, you know, argue in a few weeks, and there will be hearings probably later in September or October uh, over this policy in the Ninth Circuit. So they'll have a chance at that point to try to convince this uh, appeals panel. That uh, they need to you know stop this policy.
14: Now, if you could put this into context for us, this particular role, how does it fit into the Biden administration's vision for immigration policy?
8: Look, I mean, I think this is for them uh, quite essential. It's a way for them to try to you know advertise uh, to migrants seeking asylum, or coming to the southern border that if you cross this, the southern border, and you do it in a way that is you know, without authorization, like I mentioned, you will face consequences. And they felt like without that type of message, without this type of policy, they could be in a really difficult situation. And they have said in court filings that there were migrants waiting uh, in Mexico trying to understand the effects of this policy and whether or not they you know, would be facing consequences.
14: Hamid Ali Aziz covers immigration for the L.A. Times. Thank you so much for your time.
8: Thank you for having me.
15: Black Americans trying to learn about their heritage often struggle to fill huge gaps in their ancestral history. Many of those gaps are a consequence of slavery, but advances in DNA analysis may be changing that. WYPR Scott Masioni reports on a new study that connects unnamed enslaved people from Maryland's past to people today.
10: In 1979, workers expanding a Maryland highway came across a forgotten cemetery containing the bodies of enslaved people from the 1800s. They lived in what is known as Catoctin Furnace, a former ironworking village. About 30 bodies were exhumed and sent to the Smithsonian Institution for safekeeping. Now a partnership between the Smithsonian, Harvard University, a local historical society, and the biotech company 23andMe is using the DNA from those bodies to connect them to possible relatives in the present day. Aideen Harney is a population geneticist at 23andMe.
17: The memory of the Catoctin individuals has been largely forgotten. And the records that do exist about their lives, they are you know, describing the Catoctin individuals in terms of property.
10: Which meant their stories had largely been lost. To find out more about them, the team extracted DNA from their skeletal remains and compared the samples to 23andMe's database of genetic information made up of millions of direct-to-consumer ancestry tests. In a study that's now published in the journal Science, the researchers found that about 42,000 people who took one of the direct-to-consumer ancestry tests were in some way related to the people buried at Catoctin Furnace, and about 3,000 of those people were what researchers call close relatives.
17: And that translates most likely to a relationship that's within nine degrees. So these are ninth degree relatives or closer.
10: Meaning people today would be something like great, great, great grandchildren or cousins six times removed from the people buried there. The work is a massive breakthrough in genealogy for Black Americans. Many have trouble researching their past because slave owners and traders often did not keep records on people they enslaved.
23: That history has been obfuscated. It's been erased, it's been eliminated from our narrative.
10: Elizabeth Comer is the president of the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society.
23: We don't have, you know, any idea who these people were um, because they're anonymous within the cemetery.
10: 1870 is largely considered a brick wall for black americans who are looking to find out more about their ancestors because it's the oldest census where all black people were counted in the united states before that records were sparse what this genetic methodology potentially allows you to do is to jump over that brick wall doug owsley is a curator at the smithsonian it's the first of its kind analysis to take historical dna and tie it to really
3: tens of thousands of individuals
4: that are living today
3: and make these connections with individuals who labored at this iron forge in Maryland.
10: Comer says she hopes continued DNA and historical research can find out who the closest 3,000 present-day relatives are and give them a chance to connect with this piece of their past.
23: It's their history, and we want people to come to Catoctin, learn about Catoctin, and acknowledge the debt that we as the United States have to these um, skilled African-American ironworkers.
10: Her dream is to create an organization where relatives can come together and celebrate their common ancestors. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore.
15: This is NPR News.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. A heads up for Green Line riders this morning. The T says there are delays of about 15 minutes right now because of a disabled train at North Station. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, a preview of a Labor Department monthly report out later this morning. It's expected to show hiring remains strong despite rising interest rates. We're funded by you,
22: our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is
0: Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Showers and thunderstorms likely today. It'll be near 80, tonight mid-60s, and the storms may continue. Tomorrow may start out with some showers. Then it'll slowly turn mostly sunny and we'll have temperatures in the low 80s. Sunday, sunny, and mid-80s. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a Boston-based real estate software company is being bought out by Zillow. The four-year-old company is called Aereo. It works with real estate photographers. Zillow will pay $35 million to complete the deal. The company has 45 workers. No word on how they'll be affected. Monica's Trattoria in the North End is a big step close to reopening. It was closed last month when the city suspended its license over criminal accusations against its owner. The city approved the restaurant managers to take over the license, but that still has to get the okay from the state. The Boston Globe reports there's no timetable yet for that. One of the most iconic locations for the Christmas tree shops is getting into a different holiday. The shop at the Sagamore Bridge will be turned into a spirit Halloween store this fall. Christmas tree shops filed for bankruptcy and is closing all of its locations. It's 745.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR.
15: It's Morning Edition from NPR News, Ami Martinez. And
14: I'm Leila Faldil. Economics is often about putting a number on things like inflation and unemployment. It can also quantify daily annoyances. Erica Barris of our Planet Money team looked into a recent study that did just that. It began with an email to thousands of school principals with the subject line,
24: school inquiry. The email read... Dear principal, so-and-so, we are searching for schools for our child. Can you call one of us to discuss?" And then it listed the names and numbers of two parents, Roy and Erica. Almost 6,000 schools got that email, 1,200 call back, and Erica, the presumed mom, was 40% more likely to get that phone call than the dad was, 40%. Now. This wasn't a real school inquiry from real parents. It was from some clever economists running an experiment. And when I tried to call one of the paper's authors, Laura G., at Tufts, she kind of warily answered the call from an unknown number.
25: It's summer, so my child's at a camp, and I didn't recognize the number, and I thought, oh, well, usually I don't like to pick up random phone calls, but it might be camp, and I might need to go pick up my kid because something's gone wrong. So this study is like, it's not unrelated to your life. No, this study is a study that was born of both my interest in labor markets as an economist and my interest in um, being angsty about always getting called instead of my <laughs> male spouse. In fact, my husband is literally the vice president of my child's PTA at uh, the school. Of and I do not know why he does not get the first call when something is going wrong. As a
24: parent, it can feel like schools are more likely to call a mom before a dad. Laura and her co-authors, Olya Stoddard and Christy Bazard, found evidence that happens. And there could be real consequences
25: for what might seem like a small annoyance. There is systemic inequality in the way that men and women are treated in the world by forces outside of the household. Those forces exacerbate gender inequalities in the labor market as a whole.
24: This particular study was limited to two parent heterosexual households. Clearly, there is more research to be done. For this paper, Laura and her co-authors were drawing from their direct life experience. For years, they'd been texting each other every time this happened to them, like, "Ugh, again,
25: can you believe it? But they're economists, so they were also like. You know, this really has to affect the way that women and men interact with the workforce and the choices they make in a way that's not great for fully utilizing women as workers and being productive parts of the workforce. Those forces
24: may mean women tend to anticipate those little life interruptions. So they sort themselves into more flexible jobs. Jobs that don't pay as much. Jobs where they don't move up. And that can affect their careers and their earning potential. Erica Barris, NPR News.
22: Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
0: This is NPR News. It's Friday, and that makes it time for StoryCorps. Coming up at 8.25 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a mother and daughter discuss being a mixed-race family. It's 7.49.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, farm-to-plate Caribbean-American meals made with fresh, locally-sourced ingredients. Freshfoodgeneration.com. Hey, it's Peter
1: Sagel. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app
15: and never miss Wait Wait.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Former President Trump is due back in court later this month after pleading not guilty to federal charges accusing him of trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. A federal appeals court says a Biden administration rule restricting asylum at the U.S. southern border can temporarily stay in place. And a Russian warship was reportedly damaged in the Black Sea overnight by Ukrainian drone attack. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston. Presenting Glenn Hansard and Marketa Erglova of The Swell Season at Box Center Wang Theater, Friday, August 11th. Info at theswellseason.com.
0: Showers and thunderstorms today and around 80, mid-60s and more rain tonight. There's a chance of showers tomorrow morning. Then we'll have a mostly sunny Saturday in the low 80s, mid-80s on Sunday under sunny skies. It's 69 degrees in Boston.
14: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez.
15: July was Phoenix, Arizona's hottest month ever. The heat was round the clock with nighttime lows in the 90s for most of the month. With more hot weather come, those record-breaking warm nights are proving especially hard for people without housing. Here's KJZZ's Catherine Davis-Young.
21: Raquel Para was evicted from her Phoenix apartment eight months ago and has been sleeping in a tent ever since. She grew up in Arizona. She's used to heat, but she's never had to spend nights outside before. You're still in the heat. Whether the sun goes down or not, it's still hot outside. Para says this summer's record hot overnight temperatures have been so bad she's even had to call an ambulance.
26: I was throwing up the whole night. I couldn't even eat nothing. I just couldn't put my head up. I was just out of it. The dehydration, it really got to me that day.
21: That's exactly why public health advocates and climate experts worry about warming summer nights. Jen Brady is with the climate research group Climate Central.
11: It really does come down to being a big health concern as far as your body resting and recovery from continuous heat.
21: Brady says this is a nationwide trend. Human-caused climate change is driving up summer daytime highs, but overnight lows are warming nearly twice as fast.
11: We're seeing very few years where it's not increasing from year to year.
21: Climate Central analysis shows since 1970, summer nights in the U.S. have warmed about two and a half degrees. But Phoenix's summer nights have gotten nearly six degrees hotter. That's in part because of explosive population growth and more paved over surfaces that trap heat all night long. And as Phoenix's nights have warmed up, the region's unsheltered population has grown. Zelfia Insunsa, who works at a St. Vincent de Paul daytime heat relief center, says lately, There's a line at the door each morning.
26: You can just see it on their faces like they're just like overwhelmed or they just can't wait to get in. A day's worth of cold water
21: bottles she says gets passed out within a few hours to people exhausted after nights spent outside in this heat. Raquel Para has been cooling off here every day, but like most of Phoenix's heat relief shelters, this one's not open overnight. With nowhere else to go, Para says she's been selling her plasma just to be able to afford to sleep in a motel. I'm hoping that I can manage to, to um, scrape by to get in a room tonight. For at least one night, she's going to try to get a break from the heat. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Phoenix.
14: The heat's been unbearable for many this summer. It's why NPR's Ari Daniel went in search of possible sources of relief and bumped into the Indian yogurt drink lassi.
9: Gulri's Azhar currently lives in Bellevue, Washington,
27: where the weather is temperate and most everyone's pretty friendly. People smile at each other. They wish them good morning, good evening, even if they don't know them. This is such an American thing and I absolutely love it.
9: When Azhar, who's a public health researcher, travels to northern India, where he grew up, sometimes he greets strangers the same way.
27: People just look at you weirded out, so then you have to put back that scowl on your face.
9: Azhar says that scowl, and the feelings of anger and frustration he's often seen accompanying it, are due in part to the oppressive heat of the region. It's routinely
27: north of 110 degrees. I think the word is suffocating. Everywhere you go, all around you, it's sweaty, unbearable, it's hot, you don't feel like doing anything, just a continuous period of misery.
9: Fans just blow the hot air at you, and very few people have AC. But there are simple remedies that help a bit, says Azhar. Light cotton clothing, shifting one's work hours. And then, of course, there's what you ingest. One of Azhar's favorite beverages is the sweet yogurt
27: lassi. So lassi is something, honestly, I look forward to. Yesterday we had two rounds of lassi. (laughs) It's soothing. It takes away all your heat if you just drink water. It doesn't stay in your stomach. But with Lassi, it has sugar, it has milk, it has electrolytes. Azhar
9: thinks of the Lassi as a complete meal, one that hydrates, nourishes, and refreshes.
12: We can move into the kitchen, sure.
9: This is Azhar's wife, Afreen Fatima. She agrees to show us how Lassi's made.
12: I'll be making two glasses, so I'll take the yogurt.
9: To which she adds a splash of milk, some sugar.
12: And then I will also add a few ice cubes. And now I will blend it. Cheers.
27: Fatima takes a sip.
12: It's cold. It's sweet. um, It's it's the best drink.
27: (laughs) If you've noticed that the entire glass is empty already.
12: The refreshing feeling of it, it brings a smile on your face.
9: There are numerous variations, like the mango lassi. You can also add saffron or dried fruits. There are savory lassis, too, with salt instead of sugar. Simin Levinson is a professor of clinical nutrition at Arizona State University near Phoenix, a place that's seen lethal heat this summer. She's originally from Iran, and when it gets hot, she says she too makes a yogurt drink. It's called doug. Doug.
17: So it's more of a savory drink. You can crack some salt and pepper into it. It's usually carbonated. It's common to crush dried rose petals as a garnish
9: and mint, which is especially cooling, she says. Turkey also has a yogurt drink called Ayran. So do other countries in the Middle East. Levinson says consuming these yogurt-based drinks in hot weather, it just makes sense.
17: It does contain more nutrients than say just water alone or other types of sports drinks because it does contain protein, it contains probiotics.
9: In India, near where Ghulri's Azhar grew up, in the state of Punjab, he says he's heard of lassi being made in large volumes.
27: They do a jug of lassi. (laughs) There's no way I can drink a jug of lassi. Not happening. (laughs)
9: Azhar tells me he's even heard of lassi being made in Punjab in top-loading washing machines. He sends me a YouTube link to a wedding scene from an Indian rom-com and I see it. Washing machines mixing giant amounts
27: of lassi. <laughs> So that machine is only used for making lassi, not for any other purpose. But again, washing machines are not designed to make (laughs)
28: lassi.
9: Though if the blistering heat continues, it may be an approach worth adopting. Ari Daniel, NPR News.
14: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Liederman. I'm Layla Falden And I'm A. Martinez.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Circle Furniture, committed to offering eco-friendly options that are sustainably made and safe for your home and the environment. Locations at circlefurniture.com.
12: I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org.
0: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. FORMER PRESIDENT DONALD TRUMP SAYS HE IS THE VICTIM AFTER ENTERING A NOT GUILTY PLEA TO CHARGES HE TRIED TO OVERTURN THE 2020 ELECTION. IT'S FRIDAY, AUGUST 4TH. THIS IS WBUR'S MORNING EDITION. GOOD MORNING. I'M RUPA SHANOY. COMING UP, WE GET REACTION TO THE LATEST INDICTMENTS AGAINST TRUMP FROM REPUBLICANS IN NEW HAMPSHIRE.
18: WHERE THERE'S THIS MUCH SMOKE, THERE'S A WHOLE LOT OF FIRE. BUT I FEEL THE SAME WAY
0: ABOUT HUNTER BIDEN. Also, a Labor Department report out later this morning is expected to show hiring remains strong. And this hour, how people are coping in Argentina as that country battles some of the highest inflation in the world.
26: I have the money now, it won't have value tomorrow. So if you see something, you have to buy it in in that moment.
0: Plus, scientists are alarmed about a sharp drop in the ice around Antarctica. Showers and storms today near 80, It's 8.01. Now the news.
5: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The special counsel prosecuting former President Donald Trump has a week to propose a trial date in the January 6th case. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the Justice Department wants a speedy trial in Washington, D.C.
16: Prosecutor Thomas Wyndham says this case, like any other, should be handled in regular order, and that means a speedy trial. Former President Trump pleaded not guilty to four felony charges, including conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and conspiracy to obstruct Congress as it certified ballots on January 6, 2021. Trump's lawyer, John Lauro, says there's a significant amount of evidence in the case to review. He suggested Trump may seek a long shot bid to move the case to West Virginia, where more people voted for Trump. The former president is the front runner for the GOP nomination in 2024. He'll be fighting three criminal cases during the campaign. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
5: The National Weather Service says excessive heat is sticking around the southwest and south-central parts of the U.S. Temperatures up to 115 degrees are expected in Phoenix today. The heat index will be almost the same today in Oklahoma City. Heavy thunderstorms are crossing Alabama this morning. Forecasters have issued flash flood warnings for some northern parts of the state. They say as much as four inches of rain have already fallen, and another three inches could be on the way. Parts of the same area were hit by storms yesterday. Ten people were hurt in Etowah County, Alabama, about 60 miles northeast of Birmingham. Rusty Tidmore ran to get his daughter off his bus when the storms hit.
16: I get to the bus to get my daughter off the top bunk, trees falling everywhere, I drag her in the floor and I'm holding her in the floor and as as we hit the floor, the bus lifts off the ground.
5: More flash flood warnings are also posted this morning in parts of Missouri and Tennessee. Today, the shooting that claimed 17 lives at a high school in Parkland, Florida five years ago is being reenacted. NPR's Kristen Wright reports it's part of a civil lawsuit.
12: Ballistics experts will fire live ammunition from an identical weapon as the gunman from the same locations inside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The community has expressed anger, but the court decided the reenactment might address a key question. The school resource officer on duty that day, a sheriff's deputy, never entered the building. Scott Peterson said he couldn't hear all of the shots or pinpoint where they were coming from. University of Michigan law school professor Len Niehoff says reenactments can demonstrate complexity.
1: One reason you sometimes admit demonstrative evidence is to help the jury understand that they actually know less about something than they think they do.
12: A judge will decide whether a recording of the reenactment is played for the jury. Peterson was acquitted of criminal charges in June. Kristen Wright, NPR News.
5: On Wall Street and pre-market trading, the Dow Jones industrials are lower. This is NPR. The military junta that has seized power in Niger says it has cut all military ties with its former colonial ruler, France. The soldiers say they also fired some of Niger's ambassadors. The West African group of states, ECOWAS, has demanded that the Nigerian junta restore the ousted president to power. ECOWAS has suggested it could use military force if they don't. But two other African countries run by juntas say that means all-out war for the region. Poland has detained a suspected member of a Russian spy network. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more.
6: Poland detained what it says is the 16th person suspected of participating in a Russian spy network in the country, says Interior Minister Mariusz Kamiński. The man, identified only as Mikhail A., is from Belarus and is accused of taking part in reconnaissance of military facilities and ports as well as carrying out propaganda activities for Russia. Last month, Poland detained another man on similar charges— European intelligence services have cracked down on Russian interference since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, and hundreds of suspected Russian spies have been expelled. Rob Schmidt, NPR News, Berlin.
5: Police in South Korea say they've detained a man accused of stabbing a high school teacher today in the central part of the country. This comes after another man stabbed 14 people yesterday in a suburb of the capital, Seoul. Separately, South Korean officials say hundreds of people attending the World Scout Jamboree have been sickened by heat. South Korea is baking in a heat wave.
0: I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shunoy. The new annual report card on the pollution levels of Boston-area rivers has plenty of A's and B's, but also a couple of F's. Wars Barbara Moran says the report card grades the Charles, Mystic, and Neponset rivers.
25: One of the F grades is Mill Creek in Chelsea in the Mystic River watershed. It ranked poorly due to sewage pollution, as did several other Mystic tributaries that got D's. Patrick Heron is executive director at the Mystic River Watershed Association.
9: Places like Mill Creek in Chelsea, the Malden River, and Elway Brook are not meeting these standards. They haven't met them for 100 years, and they're all disproportionately environmental justice communities. Heron says future
25: cleanup efforts should prioritize those areas first. For 90.9 WBUR,
0: I'm Barbara Moran. The city of Boston wants to crack down on criminal activity in the area known as Mass and Cass. The intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard has become home to tent encampments and people using drugs. Tanya Del Rio was appointed by Boston Mayor Michelle Wu to lead the city's response to problems in the area. She tells the Boston Globe the city will target people engaging in, quote, dangerous behavior, but did not provide details. The state is giving $180 million to hospitals facing financial struggles. Governor Healy approved the money this week as part of a supplemental budget. It prioritizes hospitals that serve a high number of low-income patients. Hospitals will also have to show proof of financial difficulties to qualify for the money. The annual Boston Lights event opens tonight at the Franklin Park Zoo. It features lanterns and lights all across the zoo. John Linehan is the CEO of Zoo New England. He calls it a magical experience.
8: An ice world with dragons and crystals, and then it takes you through a transport and you end up in ancient Egypt. And then you go to the Great Barrier Reef with a whole bunch of underwater experiences.
0: The event runs through October. One note, if you want to go see the lights, don't expect to see the animals. Linhan says most of them will be sleeping inside. It's 8.08.
22: WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive
0: system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. The Red Sox begin a 10-game homestand tonight. They'll play the Toronto Blue Jays. Cloudy with showers and storms this afternoon. It'll be in the upper 70s. More rain possible overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Some showers are possible tomorrow, morning, then it'll be mostly sunny in the mid-80s, sunny and in the 80s on Sunday. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden
24: gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. It's Morning Edition
14: from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C.
15: I'm Mae Martinez in Culver City, California. How hot is the job market?
14: We will get a temperature check this morning when the Labor Department delivers its monthly report on hiring and unemployment. There are signs that hot weather may have put a damper on some kinds of jobs at outdoor restaurants, for example. But forecasters don't think the overall job market cooled off very much.
15: NPR Scott Horsley is here. Air conditioners have
7: been working overtime, I think everywhere. What about workers, Scott? Good morning, A. We continue to see strong demand for workers. Uh, Forecasters think employers added about 200,000 jobs in July. That would be roughly in line with what we saw in June. Now, Homebase, which makes scheduling software that a lot of restaurants and other small businesses use, says it did see a drop in restaurant traffic in places like Birmingham and San Antonio and Phoenix last month. You know, when the mercury's up over 100 degrees, a lot of people just want to stay home and sit by the fan. So that may have affected restaurant hiring in those areas. There's also been some weakness in manufacturing, but overall, the job market's still quite strong. There are a lot of openings. Layoffs are rare. uh, Worries about a recession have receded somewhat, and you are hearing more optimistic talk now about prospects for a soft landing. What about wages? What's happening with wages? They're still going up, although not as fast as they had been. Uh, The good news is inflation has also cooled. So economist Nick Bunker, who's with the Indeed Job Search website, says even with smaller pay raises, workers are finally coming out ahead.
6: There are some signs that employers need to dole out fewer raises to retain workers
2: or hire new workers. But at the same time, prices are slowing down. So workers are seeing more purchasing power for every hour that they work.
7: Hey, average wages in June were up 4.4% from a year ago, while prices during that period were up just 3%. So we'll find out later this morning what happened to wages in July. Yeah, you know, and unemployment has been really low. Is that going to continue? Yeah, the unemployment rate in June was just 3.6% near a half-century low. It's been hovering around that level for over a year now. Uh, The unemployment rate for African-Americans hit a record low in April, but then ticked up a bit the last two months. More encouraging, we have seen more people coming into the workforce in recent months, especially people in their prime working years between 25 and 54. Uh, The share of people in that age group who are now either working or looking for work is the highest it's been in over two decades. So we'll want to see if that trend continued in July. If so, it would be a good sign. Anything else uh, we should maybe be watching for in today's report? Well, you know, this is a jobs report, but it also contains some interesting information about people taking time off from work. Uh, July is traditionally a peak month for workers to take vacation, but that pattern was disrupted during the pandemic when a lot of people were nervous about travel or maybe weren't working at all. Bunker thinks today's report could show an uptick in the number of people who had jobs in July, but told the Labor Department they were on vacation the week that the survey was done
2: which I think would be one sign of sort of the normalization of life in the U.S. post-COVID, but also it would be a sign that demand for travel, leisure, hospitality was relatively strong in July.
7: That could be good for jobs in, say, the airline or hotel uh, industry. Leisure and hospitality is an industry that has seen a lot of hiring in recent years, but it's still not quite back to where it was before the pandemic struck.
15: NPR Scott Horsley, thanks for, pardon the pun, your work on this.
7: <laughs> You're welcome.
14: Inflation. When it gets out of control, it can destroy an economy and people's lives. Imagine half of your savings was gone and your rent was doubling every year. This is what's happening in Argentina right now, as NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith reports.
12: The moment you get paid in Argentina, you are in a race against time. It starts the second those pesos touch your hand. It burns your your head because you say, "Okay, I have the money now. It won't have value tomorrow. It burns your hand. Inez Marseillan lives in Buenos Aires, works in communications. That uh, insecurity makes things very unstable. Inflation in Argentina is more than 100% right now, some of the worst in the world. Prices are more than doubling every year.
26: Uh, You know that pesos, they won't last you save your money in dollars.
12: When Marce Jean gets paid, she immediately takes her pesos to one of the many local money changers and trades them in for U.S. dollars. Then she takes that cash, those dollars, to the bank, but she does not put them in her account. But in a, in a safe... Uh... Safe deposit box or... Uh, yes, yeah, safe deposit, yes. This is how people save money in Argentina. They buy U.S. dollars and stash them in a safe deposit box. When Marcejan Jean needs to buy something, she takes some of those U.S. dollars out of her safe deposit box, goes back to the money changer, and trades the dollars in for a stack of Argentine pesos, a stack that gets bigger every month. Now, it's like this big? That's like the size of a brick. Yeah, that's correct. A brick. And you think you get a lot of money, but it's not. <laughs> and the moment you get that brick, you spend it. After all, prices are rising all the time. Every one of Inez Marseillan's paychecks buys fewer and fewer dollars. The Argentine peso is losing half its value every year. So people are spending their pesos as fast as they can, stockpiling necessities, things like toilet paper, flour, sugar. And people who have a little extra are going on spending sprees. Fancy restaurants are booked solid. People bring backpacks of cash to buy a flat screen TV or concert tickets while they can still afford them. At least you give yourself a happiness, buying something that you like. This is what people do when they lose faith in the value of their currency. Spend it while it's worth something. Of course, all that spending pushes prices up more, makes inflation worse the dreaded inflationary spiral.
6: You can see where there's been real
27: messes.
12: John Taylor is an economist at Stanford. He's done groundbreaking work on inflation. He says in the case of Argentina, the government didn't take a lot of the tough steps it needed to to bring down inflation early on. And those steps only get harder as inflation gets more entrenched. And if countries put off dealing with it for too long, things can get really ugly.
6: Zimbabwe, I have carried of Zimbabwe notes in my wallet just to illustrate how terrible it can be. I think it's here somewhere. There it is. One hundred trillion dollars. So this is, a, this is what happens if you have inflation.
12: How wow. much is this worth? Pennies. A $100 trillion bill, and it won't even buy a cup of coffee. That is how bad inflation can get. This happened in Zimbabwe in 2008, and the country fell apart. Argentina's inflation isn't anywhere near that bad. But once an inflationary spiral starts, things can get bad very quickly. Already in Argentina, poverty and homelessness are skyrocketing. People are leaving the country. There's a lot of stress, affects to your job, to your work, to your family. And with elections in just a couple of weeks, says Jean, nobody knows what to expect. She hopes whoever wins will get the situation under control so that brick of pesos doesn't keep getting bigger. And Argentina? doesn't end up with its own $100 trillion cup of coffee. Stacey Bannock-Smith, NPR News.
14: It's deep winter in Antarctica right now. It should be to the time of year when the ocean around Antarctica freezes. But this year, there's less ice than ever before, and that could affect people all around the world. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk is here to talk about it. Hi, Rebecca. Good morning. Okay, so what are we talking about here? How much less ice is there in Antarctica compared to a normal year?
28: There's a lot less. You know, this is the middle of the winter. It's when, you know, we're almost to the point where there's the maximum amount of sea ice. And usually at this time, the area that's covered by sea ice is the same as Antarctica itself. Wow. yeah, the continent basically doubles in size. But this year, there's about a million square miles of open water that would usually be covered by ice.
14: Wow, that's a lot. So yeah, obviously, it's a very hot year here on Earth. I feel like every mm-hmm. morning I'm saying something about how people are surviving the unbearable heat somewhere. How mm-hmm. is this all related?
28: Well, it is related. Uh, and in the simplest terms, the, when the Earth has a hot year, it affects everything on the planet, you know, even the frozen parts, even... In the deepest part of winter in Antarctica. And the other thing to remember is this is not just one hot year. The last eight years are the hottest eight years on record. And the reason, of course, is human caused climate change, you know, burning fossil fuels. I talked to Ted Scambos about this. He studies Antarctica at the University of Colorado Boulder.
2: Right now, ocean temperatures are setting all time records, global air temperatures are setting all time records. If this system has actually absorbed some of that heat, it's hard to see how it will lose it very rapidly. And we're probably in for several years of low sea ice in Antarctica going forward.
28: So, and he really stressed this, this is not like a one-off situation this Why year. Why is that? So missing sea ice, it uh, leads to more missing sea ice and it all has to do with heat. So ice, it's very light, very bright, very white. Ocean water, on the other hand, it's darker, you know, so ice reflects the heat from the sun but Mm -hmm. the ocean absorbs it and when there's less sea ice there's more open water soaking up that heat so that warmer water it can help melt the ice around it make it melt faster and it also makes it that much harder for it to refreeze next winter right so it would take a bunch of cool years in a row to reverse what's happening right now. And obviously, with climate change, a bunch of cool years in a row is very unlikely.
14: So how does this disappearing sea ice around Antarctica affect the rest of the planet?
28: Well, the big way is sea level rise. So sea ice itself does not contribute to sea level rise. It's not extra water that's going into the ocean. It's just water that's already in the ocean that's freezing. But sea ice protects Antarctica's coastlines. Mm -hmm. It It's like a collar around the continent. It controls waves that can eat away at the edges of glaciers. Sea ice helps keep ocean water away from those glaciers. Without it, the ice that's on the land, it will melt more quickly. And that is what makes the sea levels rise around the world, right? That melting ice. Mm. Antarctica, it's important to remember, it has enough ice to raise global sea levels by 10 feet or more. So what happens there is a really big deal to everyone all over the planet.
14: Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Thank
28: Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks so much.
0: This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get reaction from Republican voters in New Hampshire to former President Trump's latest legal troubles. It's 820.
16: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go
22: to WBUR.org. The new novel, The Men Can't Be
6: Saved,
29: explores the world of advertising, but also takes a deeper look into, you guessed it,
6: men. That unwillingness of a lot of men, frankly, to be vulnerable, to examine oneself in a harsh light, potentially, is something that I I really wanted to study.
25: We speak with the author on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at
0: 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A high near 80 today with showers and thunderstorms likely. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at Paycom.com radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR
14: station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
15: I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A-Martinez. It's still summer, but doctors are already thinking about this coming RSV season. That virus is the leading cause of hospitalization in babies. But there is good news. The FDA approved a new drug for preventing RSV. And just yesterday, the CDC okayed giving this new therapeutic to babies in their first RSV seasons. But as NPR's Ping Huang reports, there are still hurdles to clear before it shows up at the doctor's office.
20: Advisors to the CDC unanimously voted to recommend this promising new drug, but they fretted over the details. The shot of antibodies prevents babies from getting sick from RSV. It lowers the risks of needing medical care for RSV by up to 75%. Dr. Jamie Lair, a family physician in Ithaca, New York, sits on the advisory committee.
2: This is a spectacular advancement. It's going to help families and offices and keep kids out of the hospital.
20: The drug makers AstraZeneca and Sanofi say the shots will be ready in time for this fall, but Lair points out there's lots of bumps to work through.
2: I am looking forward to two years from now when that'll be covered by insurances and all the implementation will be in place.
20: One concern is price. The shot is expected to go for around $450 a dose. Sarah Long and Catherine Paling, both pediatricians and committee members, took issue with the cost.
18: We are extraordinarily disappointed with the price setting of the manufacturer. We do understand that
20: the companies need to make their process, but I am worried about equity. To make the drug accessible, the CDC is putting it in their Vaccines for Children program, which covers the cost for kids that are uninsured. But the shot is considered a therapeutic, not a vaccine. Technically, the difference is that a vaccine trains a person's immune system to make its own antibodies, while this shot provides antibodies directly, a quick temporary flood that goes away after a few months. Bureaucratically, some states restrict who can give injectable drugs, which means that a healthcare worker that gives vaccines may not be able to give the shot. And there's questions too on how to keep track of these shots so that babies get one and only one dose. Claire Hannon, head of the Association of Immunization Managers, says the people who run vaccine programs on state and local levels haven't been looped into the planning.
11: They cannot be expected to deploy critical products without the information and time needed to execute these programs.
20: Given the hurdles, Dr. Tochi oroku Malise, head of the American Academy of Family Physicians, is setting some expectations for the fall.
11: I feel that realistically it will be available, whether it's widely available, I can't speak to that.
20: The CDC says these hurdles are real, but they are surmountable. And they're looking forward to a time when the drug is in widespread use, saving lots of babies from RSV. Ping Huang, NPR News. Time now for
14: StoryCorps. Luz Kenyon grew up in Mexico City in the mid-1980s. Then she took a trip to New York, fell in love with a stranger on the corner of 42nd Street, and never went home. She told her daughter, Ana Paloma, about this unexpected start to their family.
26: I always thought that I was gonna be an independent woman and I wasn't gonna get married and I wasn't gonna have any children. And then in the middle of Manhattan, I see this uniform guy. He was African-American. He was very tall and he was a traffic agent. He spoke to me first mm. and I fell under his spell. and <laughs> I married your father. What was it raising mixed kids? The only problem I had was like, how am I going to brush their hair? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But that was solved by the daycare teachers. When I would come to the daycare to pick you up, your hair was done. Yeah. Like, poor Miss Lucha. You don't know what she's doing.
24: <laughs> That's so special because motherhood is not a solo journey.
26: Well, I had women woman to rely on. Your grandmother would take the baby from me and tell me, go take a shower, go yes. take a nap. Also, your Abuela Lucha came from Mexico. And I remember Abuela Lucha was sitting and she looks, let's say, Caucasian. And you put her hand against her leg and then I saw you crying. I asked you, why are you crying, Anna? And you told me you wanted to be white like your grandmother because nobody likes black people. Yeah. And that was what? Four. Four, yeah. Abuela Lucha, she didn't speak any English, yeah. but she understood. But we just loved on you. And we assured you there was nothing wrong with you, though you were beautiful just exactly how you were. I am different. And that is special. I didn't always feel that way.
24: But I I just, I think about how rare it is to have a family that is so loving. And when we go to Mexico, I don't feel different at all. I don't speak the language. So I might not understand what's going on 75% of the time, but I know I belong. I'm like, I'm gonna get my love tank filled up. (laughs) I can't replicate it anywhere. You know, you and I both are willing to let life happen to us Mm -hmm. and then take from it
11: the shiny pieces. We move aside that dust and that debris, and we find the joy.
26: My little palomita. (laughs) Te quiero mucho. Te quiero más. Luz
14: Kenyon with her daughter, Anna Paloma Williams at StoryCorps in Atlanta. Their story is archived at the Library of Congress. Major
13: support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're
14: experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, the story of a Danish traveler who visited every country on this planet without using a plane once. It took him about 10 years. To hear about his amazing journey, listen to NPR on your phone, on your smart speaker, or on your radio. This
0: is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. A verdict is expected today in the case against imprisoned Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny. It's 8-29.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump is due back in court in Washington later this month. Trump pleaded not guilty yesterday to a four-count federal indictment. NPR's Kerry Johnson says the former president is accused of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election
16: the special counsel investigation puts trump at the center of overlapping conspiracies to defraud the government he once led to pressure state election officials and his own vice president to try to stop the vote certification
6: and to deprive americans of the right to have their votes counted in 2020. trump calls the indictment a political persecution two bodies have been found in the rio grande along the u.s mexico border Dan Katz with Texas Public Radio says one of the bodies was recovered from a wall of floating buoys deployed by Texas Governor Greg Abbott to deter illegal immigration. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security is calling for an investigation into the bodies found in the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador called the situation inhumane as one of the migrants was found caught in a floating buoy barrier. Governor Greg Abbott had the buoys placed in the river to deter illegal crossings and says he's stepping in where the Biden and Lopez Obrador administrations are failing. The Biden administration has sued Texas over the buoys and is seeking an order to have them removed. I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio. This is NPR News. The jackpot for tonight's Mega Millions lottery is now at an estimated one and a quarter billion dollars. It's one of the largest lottery prizes on record in the US. There have been 30 consecutive drawings since April without a winning ticket. Lawyers for app companies were in court yesterday in New York City, arguing against a law that requires them to pay a minimum wage to more than 60,000 food delivery workers. NPR's Danielle Kay says a judge in Manhattan heard from both sides at a hearing on the lawsuit.
21: App companies would be required to pay delivery workers nearly $18 an hour. As of now, they make an average of $11 an hour, including tips. That's because they're independent contractors, not employees with set schedules or hours. They're paid per delivery. Gustavo Arche, a delivery worker and organizer, says this pay standard would help.
27: Mostly workers just depend on tips. So I think it's not fair. We're living in a big city as a New Yorkers. I think we need this minimum pay.
21: The rule was supposed to go into effect in July, but Uber, DoorDash, Grubhub, and New York-based Relay sued the city. The companies argue the law would lead to higher costs for consumers. Danielle Kay, NPR News, New York.
6: Moments ago, the Labor Department reported employers in the U.S. added 187,000 jobs in the month of July. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A $375 million plan to improve the state's roads and bridges is set to become law today. Governor Healy says she'll sign the legislation while traveling to Lowell and Amesbury. The plan will reimburse towns and cities for transportation-related infrastructure. It also includes money to support public transit. A local nonprofit says the proposed state budget boosts much-needed support and services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. But the group says more needs to be done. Maura Sullivan is Director of Government Affairs for the Arc of Massachusetts. She says some people in need of support have been without much-needed day services since the pandemic started, and that has had an impact on their families.
17: Families haven't been able to return to work and uh, they're doing 24-7 care for their loved one who may have in the past had uh, a very rich day program that they could attend
0: each day. Sullivan says her organization is pushing for legislation that would allow parents and guardians to be paid caregivers. Federal investigators blame the crew of a private jet for nearly colliding with a JetBlue plane at Logan Airport. The incident happened back in February. Investigators say the pilots of the Learjet took off without permission. They got onto the runway as the JetBlue flight was about to land. The crew of that plane was forced to make an evasive maneuver to avoid a crash. In sports, tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox host the Blue Jays. Boston is two games behind Toronto for the third American League wildcard spot. Uh, the New England Revolution are moving on to the League's Cup. They beat the Mexican team Atlas FC in penalty kicks last night in Foxborough. The Revs' next match is Monday. A rainy Friday today with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Temperatures will rise to near 80. Tonight those fall to the mid 60s and the storms and showers may continue. Saturday may start with rain then skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with highs in the low 80s, sunny and mid 80s on Sunday. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat or phone at betterhelp.com/public. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com/npr. And for the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The multiple legal challenges facing Donald Trump are dividing Republican presidential candidates. Some are calling the charges against the former president politically motivated. Others are urging him to quit the race. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has been on the presidential campaign trail in New Hampshire, and he joins us now to explain how Trump's latest indictment is playing out. Good morning.
2: Hey, Rupa, good morning.
0: Thanks so much for being here. What are you hearing from the candidates?
2: Well, there really is a stark division between two groups in the GOP field. On one side are Republicans, including the candidate who's running a distant second to Trump. That would be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who pretty much parrot Trump's defense that these charges are politically motivated. In fact, DeSantis tweeted this week that as president, he would end what he called the weaponization of government. By the way, he tweeted that out before he, he had even read the latest indictment. That's also the position of Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, an entrepreneur and right-wing conservative who has become one of Trump's biggest defenders. And I, and I caught up with Ramaswamy yesterday in Milford, and here's a bit of what he said. Criminalizing every bad judgment is a dangerous, slippery slope to go down in this country. And I do think that on this same set of facts, anyone not named Trump would not have been indicted. I think that's the fact of the matter. Now, Rupa, that's close to what some other candidates have said, including former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who served as Trump's U.N. ambassador. Although Haley has begun to say that all these charges, as they add up, are becoming a bit of a distraction. Uh, on the campaign trail. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has also called the charges political and suggests that uh, the Biden Justice Department is going easy on Democrats like Hunter Biden while dropping the hammer on Republicans like Trump. But it's important to mention here that, that Trump's been charged in two federal cases by special counsel Jack Smith, who operates independently from the rest of the Justice Department.
0: I did see former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie come out criticizing Trump. Is there anyone else doing that?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, let's talk first about Christie. He launched his long shot bid for the Republican nomination in New Hampshire in June, and he's made criticizing Trump the focus of his campaign. He says by inciting the violent uh, January 6th insurrection, Trump disgraced himself, that he violated his oath and brought shame to his presidency. And he also says that the two indictments brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith are not politically motivated. Another candidate who's been critical for some time of the former president is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who's called uh, for Trump to get out of the race. Now, Hutchinson was in uh, Nashua on Wednesday, and here's a bit of what he said about the latest indictment.
7: He does need to withdraw from the race in reference to January 6th and Donald Trump's responsibility for it. We need to side with the rule of law and accountability. This is a critical issue for 2024, and every Republican candidate for president needs to state clearly where they are on this.
0: What about former Vice President Mike Pence, who plays a key role in the most recent indictment? Have you talked to him?
2: Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's His position is complicated. It's evolving, I would say. When I spoke to him in May, Pence declined to criticize his former boss, saying he would leave that judgment to voters. But then he called the classified uh, document case in Florida divisive. But recently, he's come down harder on Trump, saying anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And as you mentioned, Pence is a key witness in special counsel Jack Smith's case against Trump.
0: Okay, how about voters? What are you hearing from them? Well, let me give you two
2: voices. Uh, When I was at the Asa Hutchinson event in Nashua earlier this week, I spoke to Matthew Coombs. He's a Trump supporter who said this about the former president's legal challenges.
4: Donald Trump did a lot of good in this country, and I think it's definitely a political motivation why he's being prosecuted, and I think it's wrong.
2: Your feeling is the indictments are politically motivated.
8: Yes, very much so.
2: But, uh, Rupa, yesterday, I also spoke to Republican Kathy Holland of Sandown, New Hampshire. She's not a Trump supporter and said this about the charges against him.
18: I think there's probably more he could be charged with. Where there's this much smoke, there's a whole lot of fire. But I feel the same way about Hunter Biden.
2: So, Rupa, there it is, uh, that reference to Hunter Biden. That's a bit of a Republican talking point that comes up quite a bit. It's a reference to President Biden's son and how he was able to make so much money from a Ukrainian energy company. And and it's a suggestion also that his father was in some way connected to that corruption. But there's been no credible evidence of any wrongdoing uh, by President Biden.
0: So I've heard experts say the legal cases against Donald Trump are likely to last several months, if not longer. What kind of impact do you think that'll have on the primary race in New Hampshire?
2: Well, so far, polls suggest that Trump is the Republican frontrunner by far in in, uh, New Hampshire and nationally. So it seems the deeper his legal peril, the more his base rallies around him. I spoke to Dave Carney. He's a, a New Hampshire Republican political strategist about this. And Carney says this poses a big challenge to the other Republicans in the field because Trump's unprecedented legal problems consume so much of the oxygen in this race.
27: Do you think any reporter is going to ask any presidential campaign in the next month about anything other than the Trump you know, legal situation? That just reinforces the president's message. And they never get a chance to put their elevator pitch out to voters.
2: So Carney says all the noise from the indictments present a a big challenge for any candidate not named Trump in New Hampshire and really across the country uh, as we head toward the early primaries.
0: WBUR senior political reporter Anthony Brooks, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure, Rupa. Thank you.
0: There's a lot to sort out after former President Donald Trump pled not guilty to charges he conspired to overturn the 2020 election. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for insights on his defense, what's next in the case, and how it'll impact the 2024 election. Coming up in 10 minutes, why even a little time with a dog can be good for your physical and emotional health. Showers and thunderstorms are likely today. It'll be near 80. Tonight, mid-60s, and the storms may continue. Tomorrow may start out with some showers. Then it'll turn mostly sunny and we'll have temperatures in the low 80s. Sunday, sunny, and mid-80s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, the state is investigating the use of artificial intelligence in the financial services industry. This week, the state's securities division sent letters to securities firms asking for information on their use and development of AI. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is leading the inquiry. He says it focuses on whether the use of artificial intelligence in the industry would put a company's interests ahead of investors.
9: Is it an appropriate proposal for all the data points that might be considered? And
0: is there a conflict of interest here?
9: And what is the initiative coming from? What is the basis of reaching out to these particular people?
0: Firms have just under two weeks to respond. Rhode Island-based Hasbro struck a half-billion-dollar deal to sell its film and TV unit to Lionsgate. The sale will come as a loss for the toy company. It bought the Entertainment One television and film business for $4 billion just four years ago. The companies expect to close the deal by the end of the year. It's 844.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C.
15: And i Martinez in Culver City, California. Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic inside Russia is set to be sentenced on extremism charges today. A Russian court is expected to deliver a verdict in the latest trial of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny.
14: Prosecutors are asking for Navalny to serve an additional 20 years in prison on charges his supporters call absurd. Navalny says he expects his sentence will be grim.
15: Joining us to talk about this case is NPR's Charles Maines, who's in Moscow. Charles, this trial unfolded behind closed doors. What can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, you know, Navalny's latest trial has taken place under really unusual circumstances, even by Russian standards. Uh, Judges moved the trial from Moscow to inside the very prison, uh, where Navalny is already serving a nine-year sentence on fraud and embezzlement charges. Navalny now faces a slew of new anti-extremism-related charges tied to his work with the now-defunct Anti-Corruption Foundation. Uh, He's accused retroactively, I might add, of financing and inciting extremist activities, as well as supposedly rehabilitating Nazi ideology. Uh, Navalny's supporters, uh, they call those charges and the circumstances of the trial patently political. Uh, They say this is really about the Kremlin, and President Vladimir Putin in particular, uh, trying to silence Navalny over the long haul.
15: Now, the trial happens uh, against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine and also a wider crackdown on dissent in Russia. How has Navalny responded to those events?
1: Well, some feel the arrest of Navalny and pressure against his foundation, Uh, several of his members of his team are also in jail on these extremism charges, Uh, was really an attempt to weed out political opponents ahead of the invasion of Ukraine, which, as you say, has since seen this crackdown against any form of dissent and yet even from prison much of it spent in an isolation cell and Navalny has remained an important if if not leading voice against the war uh, mostly through statements on social media delivered through his lawyers and despite this closed trial Navalny's used the platform again we read but don't hear his statements uh, to rail against the war saying it left Russia floundering in his words a pool of mud and blood How many Russians will see that is debatable, but the message is out there or has been, you know, these new charges come with harsher prison conditions, meaning that the line of communication may well grow dimmer.
15: And Navalny doesn't sound hopeful. I mean, he looks like he's expecting the worst.
1: Um, What's he saying? Well, yesterday, Navalny issued a statement saying he understands that he will get a, quote, Stalinist sentence. That's a reference to repressions under Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. Uh, but Navalny was quick to tell supporters this is done not to intimidate me, uh, but to intimidate you. Uh, in other words, by imprisoning hundreds, the Kremlin is trying to intimidate millions. So, so he's using this moment to call on Russians to resist through acts small and big, uh, clearly understands that not everyone is like him. Uh, a man who, after all, was nearly poisoned to death, uh, lived to tell the tale after a coup operating abroad, and then chose to return to Russia in almost certain imprisonment. And and this has really been a hallmark of Navalny's style throughout his ordeals. He's not given into despair, but argues Russians uh, will eventually realize what he calls the beautiful Russia of the future. Uh, Yet given the harsh treatment he's already received, and which looks only likely to get worse, uh, the concern is whether Navalny will be around to see it. All right, that's
15: NPR's Charles
1: Maines in Moscow. Charles, thank you. Thank you.
15: In 1979, reporter Roberto Rodriguez witnessed police brutality in Los Angeles, and while trying to document it, he was attacked by L.A. County Sheriff's deputies, ending up hospitalized for days. His seven-year quest for justice that followed the incident led him to write Justice, a Question of Race. Over the years, he also wrote poems and articles and became one of the most prominent Chicano writers. Roberto Rodriguez died Monday of heart failure in Mexico. He was 69 years old. Anna Ochoa O'Leary heads the Mexican-American studies department at the University of Arizona where Rodriguez was an associate professor emeritus. She joins us now from Tucson. Uh, What drove him to be a champion for Chicanos uh, as some Mexican-Americans identify?
23: Well, many of the people who are in a a subject area like Mexican-American studies are inspired by their desire to help other people who have similar experiences. If you grew up Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American and experienced certain hardships, uh, violence or disrespect, hostilities. Well, one of the purposes of Mexican-American studies is to communicate those experiences within the history of America, within the history of the United States and share those experiences so that we might learn from them. And indeed, our scholarship is built from those experiences and that history.
15: And he was a leader in that.
23: He was very much a leader. He was dedicated to that type of scholarship. Uh, I think that one of the things that he did was to foment and to strengthen the relationship between traditional academic scholarship and this community outreach and service. That's pretty fundamentally consistent with the nature of our discipline and the nature of how it is that we learn from each other, and how knowledge is produced.
15: That beating, that brutal beating at the hands of LA County Sheriff's deputies that he took in 1979, what kind of emotional and physical toll did it uh, have on him?
23: If one suffers that kind of violence, the emotional, the physical, one carries it with them as you move on and develop in the world just like other populations that experience so you there's there's a piece of you that relates to other people who have been fighting for social justice other people who have experienced the same type of experience simply for the fact that you are of a different color a different language group a different ethnicity and he was a great communicator of that type of violence and that type of physical hardship And we begin to see, once you start to communicate something like that, is that many other people have suffered. I mean, one of the biggest examples we have is the recent uh, police violence that other people of color have experienced. And so once you know that, you can work towards a solution. We become woke, so to speak.
15: Roberto Rodriguez was such a fierce warrior who really wanted to take up for his gente, his people. What do you think gave him hope about the people he fought so hard for?
23: Well, I think for activists such as himself, because he was a scholar and an activist, the hope that people like him cling on to is really energized by some progress. So, you know, we look at in a historical context. We see that there, you know, we have evolved to a more tolerant society. Surely there's work to be done but any threat of progress really invigorates any struggle to make our environment better and our social society more equitable and tolerant. And once the activists see that, then that hope really energizes others.
15: Anna Ochoa O'Leary heads the Mexican American Studies Department at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Anna, thank you for your memories.
23: Thank you so much.
15: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC Hour. They'll look at the dangers posed by the record temperatures of the world's oceans caused by climate change and the case of a $4.5 billion Bitcoin scam. It's 853.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS.
2: When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin.
22: Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter.
2: WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us.
22: To become a WBUR underwriter, go to wbur.org sponsorship.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The Labor Department says U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month, and the unemployment rate dipped to 3.5 percent. There will be another court hearing for former President Donald Trump at the end of the month. He pleaded not guilty yesterday to charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election. And the ousted president of Niger is asking the U.S. for help in overturning last month's military coup. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston, presenting Glenn Hansard and Marketa Erglova of The Swell Season at Box Center Wang Theater, Friday, August 11th. Info at
0: theswellseason.com. Showers and thunderstorms today around 80, mid-60s, and more rain tonight. There's a chance of showers tomorrow morning. Then we'll have a mostly sunny Saturday in the low 80s, mid-80s on Sunday under sunny skies. It's 71 degrees in Boston.
15: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
14: And I'm Leila Falden. Some people like to say, if you need a friend, get a dog. As NPR's Maria Godoy reports, even brief, friendly interactions with dogs can be good for our health.
29: I started pondering the power of dogs during one of my daily strolls around my neighborhood. Hi, how you doing? Can I have a lick? This dog, a tiny thing named Freddie D, (gasps) is happy to comply with a sloppy kiss of my hand. Oh, look at that. For me, it's a silly moment of joy. You are so cute, you are so cute. I always walk away from these canine exchanges feeling just a bit more relaxed and happy. And that got me wondering, could these short interactions petting other people's pooches actually be good for me? Absolutely, animals are beneficial to our mental and physical health. That's Nancy G. She's a professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University. She says in recent years, research on the health benefits of dogs has exploded and the quality of the evidence has improved. She says there's growing evidence that levels of the stress hormone cortisol drop in people after just 5 to 20 minutes
5: spent interacting with dogs, even if it's not their pet. We see increases
22: in oxytocin, so that feel-good kind of bonding hormone also increases. You know what I love about this research is that it's a two-way street. We see the same thing in the dogs, so the dog's oxytocin also increases when they interact with a human.
29: Now, of course, not everyone's a dog person, and the therapy dogs used in research are screened for friendliness and good behavior. There's also evidence that brief bouts of puppy love may also help us think better. G collaborated on a study that found school-age kids who had regular, short exchanges with pups in the classroom had reduced stress and improvements in their ability to stay on task and block out distractions. And G says those benefits
22: lingered. We actually saw that one month later, and there's some evidence that it may exist at six months later.
29: So what is it about hanging out with dogs that helps us chill out and focus? Megan Mueller studies the psychology of human-animal relationships at Tufts University. She says dogs prompt us to experience the world more like they do.
19: Animals, dogs in particular, live in the moment. They're experiencing their environment with wonder and awe all the time, and they're not bringing what happened to them earlier in the day or what they're thinking about in the future. They're there right now.
29: Mueller says watching dogs sniff the grass or explore the world around them cues us to pay more attention too.
19: They sort of pull you out of your phone and into whatever environment that you're in.
29: She says there's some evidence that the act of actually touching a dog might be an important part of their calming effect. One study done in Canada found that college students reported less stress and reduced feelings of homesickness after brief interactions with dogs. And that effect was much bigger in those who actually got to pet the animals. She's currently running a study that's finding similar results.
19: Physical touch might impact our nervous system in a way that's beneficial.
29: But it's not just how we cue into dogs that makes the relationship special. Nancy G. of Virginia Commonwealth University says over thousands of years of domestication dogs have developed a wondrous ability to read
5: us. They really can connect with another human being. And they do it in a very unassuming way.
29: And they do it without the ability to use words. As my dog-loving nine-year-old recently told me, dogs have a way of speaking to our hearts. Maria Godoy, NPR News.
14: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falta,
0: and I'm May Martinez. Stay with WBUR today as the fallout continues after former President Donald Trump pled not guilty to charges he conspired to overturn the 2020 election. Listen on the WBUR app or at 90.9 on the radio. Showers and thunderstorms today. Near 80 tonight. Mid 60s with more showers possible. It's 71 degrees in Boston, and the BBC is coming up next. I'm
11: WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.